Hello, and welcome to our COVID Minute podcast series from UT Health San Antonio. I'm Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, and Associate Dean for Quality and Lifelong Learning. Our goal is to bring you timely and concise insights and updates on COVID-19 by interviewing our UT Health faculty experts who are very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Barbara Taylor, Associate Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, and Assistant Dean for the MD-MPH program at the Lozano Long School of Medicine. Dr. Taylor is also the principal investigator at our site for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. So, Dr. Taylor, this is a very exciting week for the vaccine. Tell us what's happening this week. This is such an exciting week, Dr. Patterson. Thanks for having me on. So, lots has happened already this week, and there's lots more to come. So, just yesterday, we saw the first publicly released data about Pfizer's application to the FDA for something called emergency use authorization. So the hearing for that is actually tomorrow. It's on December 10th for those of you who are listening at different times. But yesterday, December 8th, was the first time that Pfizer's application to the FDA was actually made public. So we all got to see a lot more data, especially on the phase three trial of the Pfizer vaccine candidate than any of us have ever seen before. And it was really exciting. The other things that are happening this week are also that the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine was were delivered in the UK. Uh, the first official dose was a 90 to a 91 year old woman who did a very sweet interview. So if you want to be inspired, I would encourage everybody to listen to this woman talk about being the first to receive the vaccine. And I saw that. And then the second person or one of the other people yesterday was an 81 year old man named William Shakespeare. I mean, how, how very that, appropriate for the UK. I know how you can't you can't even make that stuff up. Anyway, yeah, so, so yeah, go yeah, ahead. So it's coming fast and furious now. We will probably tomorrow is the meeting of what's called the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, the Verb Pack, and. Very shortly thereafter, we expect the FDA to have a ruling on whether the Pfizer vaccine candidate will be granted emergency use authorization. That means that we could be getting the vaccine, some of us in the United States, as early as next week. Wonderful. That's very exciting news. So um, this has been incredibly fast for vaccine development. Um, but there's been a lot of advances in, in how we do uh, these vaccines. Tell us about the strategies for the development of these vaccines, how they were able to do it so fast, and the leading candidates. So it is really exciting because some of the strategies that are being used to develop COVID-19 vaccines are new. We don't have any vaccines like that. So I'm going to talk about three strategies. Uh, the first two are are relatively new. And the third one is sort of the tried and true way that we've always uh, made vaccines. So the first one are mRNA vaccines. Actually, both the Pfizer and the Moderna candidates, which are the ones that are under review by the FDA right now, are mRNA-based vaccines. Now, this is a novel strategy. It's never been used before, but there's been a lot of research behind it. And as you can probably tell, it's faster to make an mRNA vaccine, which is why Pfizer and Moderna are sort of first out of the gate. 
this, the mRNA vaccine codes a small part of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. So you take that tiny little genetic code of the spike protein, the mRNA, and you code it with a lipid. So it's basically a little piece of code coated in fat, and then you inject that as the vaccine. And so what your body does is it uses our own host mechanisms to change the mRNA to a protein, a copy of the spike protein right away. And then our body recognizes the protein and makes antibodies to it that will protect us if we see the spike protein again when we're exposed to COVID-19. Now, I think it's really important to know that that mRNA, the genetic code, does not live for very long in a human cell. It gets degraded right away by our own mechanisms. It is made to do that. We don't want it hanging out for a long time. We just want to make some spike protein and have our body respond to it. It also does not wind up in our own genetic code. It's not capable of doing that. So that's the mRNA strategy. That's Pfizer and Moderna. So second strategy are vector-based strategies. So the two out of the gate with vector-based strategies in phase three trials in the United States are the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine and the uh, Janssen-Johnson & Johnson, which is hard to say, yes. uh, vaccine. Uh, so both of those are vectors. So this means that there's a different virus. Usually uh, in vector-based vaccines, these are not viruses that infect or harm humans. So in the case of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, it's actually a chimpanzee adenovirus. In the case of the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine, it's an adenovirus uh, 26, which is a, a human adenovirus, but it doesn't make us sick. Both of these vectors for both of these strategies are made so that they can't replicate in your body. So basically the vector only serves as a delivery vehicle. They have our, they were modified to have a little bit of the spike protein in them. So when you get, so if I were to receive that vaccine, my body would hopefully recognize the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, even though it's on a different vector and make antibodies to that. So those are the next two. And then finally, the next two candidates that are coming down the pipe that are one of them is currently in phase three trials in the UK. The other one is not in phase three trials yet, are the Novavax candidate and the Sanofi candidate. Those are protein adjuvant-based vaccines. So those are sort of the, you know, the hepatitis B vaccine that everybody gets is like this. So that's a, a more uh, used currently strategy for vaccines. And basically it just takes a protein of the virus pairs it with an adjuvant, which is something that sort of makes your own immune system wake up and delivers it to your body so that your immune system wakes up, sees the protein, makes antibodies, and then hopefully protects you against subsequent infection. Right, and those are recombinant proteins, right? So they didn't have to wait yes. for the virus to grow in eggs or cell culture or whatever. So that was another speedy way that they were able to get there. And really all of this because the virus was sequenced so early, January 5th, 2020, um, you know, the, the uh, viral genome was sequenced and so they were able to work with it and identify the spike protein. So really this is a lot of amazing progress um, and very encouraging that this is getting rolled out. So what do we know about side effects? 
So, so far for the two vaccine candidates that are likely to be uh, receiving EUA within the next couple of weeks, the Pfizer candidate and the Moderna candidate, those seem to have pretty tolerable side effects. So people should expect to have a couple days of fatigue or muscle and joint, and joint aches. Some people get fevers, but really you expect that to happen within the first couple of days after the shot. And then most people are better within just a few days. There have been a very few people that have had allergic reactions to the vaccine. And so people who are prone to severe allergic reactions definitely should talk to their provider before they receive the vaccine. But generally, both the Pfizer and the Moderna candidates, from what we see so far, and now even with the more data that we have about the Pfizer candidate, look pretty well tolerated. Yes, and we heard uh, just today about the two people in the UK that got the vaccine and had an anaphylactoid reaction, not true anaphylaxis. But these were people that had known history of severe allergies that carried around an EpiPen all the time uh, because they had a history of this. So we would expect this to be pretty unusual. And so the, those people that have those kind of allergic reactions would need to self-identify. Um, okay, now what about pregnancy? So pregnancy is a really good question. So, so far in the trials, in any of these trials, they have not enrolled pregnant women. So there are, however, in the Pfizer trial, from the data that they've shared with us, only 23 participants who got the vaccine became pregnant. They were, everybody in the Pfizer trial had to sign a thing saying, you're not gonna become pregnant, but we know these things happen. And so 23 participants did become pregnant. Nine withdrew from the study. The remaining 14 are, are being followed for pregnancy outcomes, and we really don't have data on that. I think it is interesting, though, because the uh, maternal fetal medicine experts are actually advising us locally that we should still offer the vaccine to pregnant women who are at high risk. So, for example, healthcare workers or frontline workers, and then leave it up to the, um, the pregnant individual to decide. Yes. Okay. That, that seems to be a good strategy. All right, so uh, now that we've talked about all that, um, how are the vaccines going to be distributed? Who will get it and when? That's the, the question of the hour, or definitely the question of the next few months. So we have guidance from the ACIP, which is a part of the CDC, to prioritize certain groups. And the first group that they are asking us to prioritize, so they describe these people as the 1A tier, are people who are healthcare workers on the front lines and those over 65 living in congregate settings like skilled nursing facilities or nursing home. We know that both of those groups are incredibly high risk. Obviously, there's a reason to protect frontline healthcare workers first because we need frontline healthcare workers to remain well because we are, most, much of the US is in the middle of a surge. And so that vaccination is what's likely to begin, um, fingers crossed, next week and continue through the end of December, January, and February. After that, and maybe a little bit overlapping with that, depending on vaccine supply, we would start vaccinating other frontline workers, so like police and fire, um, teachers are on some states list. So every state and every organization is trying to come up with a vaccine strategy that protects those most at risk first, and then rolls out as more vaccine becomes available to the general population. 
And so uh, since fever can be a side effect, I think around five to 6% of people, um, you know, we've been thinking here locally, you wouldn't want to vaccinate everyone in the same department that has the same function on the same day because they could all have fever on the same day. And, uh, you know, you don't really want to go to work with fever because it's probably the vaccine, but you don't know what it is and you probably don't feel like working. So what's the plan for that to kind of stagger that out a little bit, people in the same department? Yeah, that's a really great I mean, it's sort of thinking about the strategy for this, it all gets much more complicated when you get down to brass tacks and putting vaccines in people's arms. But definitely you wouldn't want to vaccine an, you wouldn't want to vaccinate an entire unit at once because simultaneous to vaccine rollout, which is really important, we are all battling a surge in new COVID cases. And so hospitals and clinics and healthcare facilities are going to be stretched. And so we really wanna make sure that we stagger people getting the vaccine while getting people the vaccine as quickly as possible so that we don't have entire units feeling not so well in the first day or so after the vaccination all at the same time. And so we hear about um, after healthcare workers and long-term care residents, uh, we also hear in the tier one about essential workers. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about what that term means, uh, but uh, what, what does that term mean, essential workers? Who is that? That's a great question. So it, it's been interesting because in some ways states are and different locations are defining this differently. So I think very basically an essential worker is a worker for, who, for whom their activity is really essential for the functioning of society. So if you look at the CDC document, the ACIP document, they prioritize folks in the education sector, food and agriculture, utilities, police, firefighters, corrections officers, transportation workers, those types of folks. I was reading an article over the weekend that said that there have been interesting conversations in, in specific settings. For example, in Nevada, they have been talking about whether or not casino workers could be considered <laughs> frontline essential workers because they are uh, essential for the economy of the state. And so different people might have different, different sort of inclusion criteria, mm -hmm. but that's basically the gist. It's people who really we need to work to keep society running and who can't work from home. So I guess only in Nevada, right? The casino workers. <laughs> yes, that it, I, as far as I know, that only applies to Nevada. But Maybe I have seen, city, I don't know. Yeah, I have seen um, meat packing, um, you know, employees yeah. from meat packing plants because we've had a terrible problem with outbreaks in those plants, I guess, because of the proximity of how people work and also the cold conditions, which is conducive to survival of the virus. So, um, and then, you know, there's, a, you know, our economy and our society are dependent on the meat being distributed. So uh, I guess in some settings, those could be considered essential workers too. Yeah, so if you think about San Antonio, to be San Antonio specific, we are the headquarters for ATB, which is the largest employer in the state of Texas. And uh, many would argue is really essential for us all getting food on our table. Right. And so those workers might be considered, I, I think they fit under the food and agriculture yes. category and could be considered essential workers. Right, and certainly they are public facing. Okay, yeah. and so then when, when would the general public 
be expected to get it? And will the general public, will they, uh, will people with, you know, older people with underlying diseases go first or how, how is that going to work? Are supposed so, to work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a great, I think supposed to work is a good way to frame that. And I think, you know, a lot of this depends on what's the vaccine supply, how many of these other vaccines that I mentioned were in the pipeline actually get EUAs and come on to the, become available. We're hoping that many of them, I think early data are very promising for all six of the vaccine candidates that I mentioned. So the next, after sort of healthcare personnel, long-term care facilities, then uh, essential workers, then the next category of folks who would be prioritized, probably overlapping some degree with essential workers, are adults with high-risk medical conditions and people over 65. So we've learned a lot about who gets really bad illness with COVID-19. And obviously anybody can have, I, you know, we both have taken care of really healthy, 30-somethings who got really sick with COVID-19, mm -hmm. but certainly people with heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, people with diabetes, people who are obese have a higher risk for complications. So those folks would get prioritized. And then after that, so if you think about timeline, now we're getting into sort of mid-2021. This is all very speculative. So then after that, general public gets vaccinated. So it's probably a while before, you know, a sort of previously a, a healthy 30 something or 40 something or even 50 something without medical conditions gets offered a vaccine. And somewhat ironically, those are the ones who we think are spreading it. <laughs> so yeah. what does getting the vaccine mean? What does that mean? We can stop wearing our masks as soon as we get the vaccine. What does that mean? Oh, I, I wish that the answer to that was yes, um, but it is not. So there are two factors I think that are really important in thinking about what getting the vaccine means. So one is the individual sort of thing, which is in both of the trials for that we have data in so far, there were definitely COVID infections in the group that got the vaccine. So, and in, in one of them, there were no severe COVID infections, that's the Moderna trial, so that's great. But you will, a very small, hopefully, fraction of people who get the vaccine can still get COVID. So you're still going to want to protect yourself. So would you say 5% or so, because these are supposedly 95% yes. effective? <laughs> exactly. So 5%. Exactly 5% to the data yes. that we have okay. so far. Yeah. So then the other part is that it's going to take a while, as we just discussed, for us to get to the point where most people have some protection, probably six months, probably more like a year for the general public. And when we talk about this concept of herd immunity, where we have enough people who are immune to a virus in the general population, that it becomes harder for that virus to replicate itself. You know, the virus's job is just make more of itself. That's what it's out there trying to do. And it will continue to do that until we have enough people who are immune that the virus can't find new people to infect. That's probably months and months away. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Now, um, what about those who are hesitant to take the vaccine? I mean, you know, it's kind of understandable uh, because there's been this big rush and we've just talked about why it was, the development was quicker. Uh, and some explanation for that. But why do you think there's this hesitancy out there and what message would you have for those folks? 
So I think it hesitancy makes sense, right? These are new uh, agents. These are new vaccines that are on are going to be on the market for the first time. And so I think it is really important for everybody to educate themselves and learn about the vaccine. And for us as healthcare workers and infectious diseases doctors to talk about the importance of the vaccine. Now, that being said, I can assure you that the same safety steps that we've used for every vaccine development in the past have been used for these vaccines. So we're doing the same types of studies, we're looking for the same outcomes. I think the, the real advantage that we have, as we've talked about before, is that the science moved a lot faster. We had the sequence faster and we've been able to really have a lot of funding to develop these vaccines more quickly. So I think the vaccines are going to be well studied and well understood. That being said, there may be things that we don't know about them yet. So for example, for somebody who has a history of allergic reactions, then it's gonna be an individual decision for them, but they might wanna hesitate. But for somebody who's healthy, or for somebody who is at risk for severe COVID-19, I think it would be really important for them to think about their risks and benefits and think about the risk to their lives in the middle of a COVID surge of getting COVID because it is even sort of the chance of that can be really, um, it's really risky. So the risk versus benefit of the vaccine, I think for people, particularly the people who are in the early stages of being offered the vaccines, in my opinion, and I think generally the benefits definitely outweigh the risks. So will you be taking the vaccine? So I actually am a participant in one of the early phase three trials. So I do not know, I may or may not have had the vaccine already, um, but if I haven't, I definitely will be. Um, and I think my my family are also in the same boat. My parents are older and have comorbidities. And so I would hope that they would also take the vaccine. And then what about kids? So children were not studied in these trials. What is the plan for them? Will there be uh, studies forthcoming for them? What about the kids? Yeah, that's a great question. So the focus really has been on people over 18 because they're the folks who seem to be doing the majority of both getting pretty sick from COVID and passing the COVID around. And so for kids, trials in kids have started. So the Moderna pediatric trial is launching now. I think they've already started enrolling. Pfizer also expanded its uh, inclusion criteria to enroll um, not very young children, but adolescents. And so we will have a lot more data soon about pediatric cases, which will be really helpful. So for now, the vaccines are only going to be offered to adults, but I suspect, considering how quickly we accrued data in the adult trials, we will probably pretty quickly have some good data for kids as well. That's great. Well, thank you, Dr. Taylor, for this information about vaccines. It's an exciting time to be talking about this really historic development strategy and what we hope is the beginning of the end of this pandemic. Join us next time as we talk to Dr. C.J. Winkler, Assistant Professor of Emergency Health Services here at UT Health, as we talk about monoclonal antibodies, their benefits, and how a community is addressing the challenge of administering them.
Thank you. Thanks so much.